Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome once again to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Coming to you live and in color from the great state of Tennessee. Uh, I'm your friend, Nate Larkin, here in the thriving metropolis of Mount Pleasant, where exciting things are happening. Uh, connected via the worldwide interweb with my brother, 30, 40 miles away, Aaron Porter. Hey, Aaron. Hey, there are beautiful clouds in the sky tonight. Do you have beautiful clouds? Do we have the same clouds? I think we do. They are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, the uh, the rains have passed, uh, and once again, we're talking about the weather on the podcast. Oh, no, wow. but you know what? <laughs> I, I was thankful because I really needed to do a lot of mowing. I had neglected my mowing this week in lieu of baking bread, uh, and so it was great. It rained. I couldn't mow. Nothing I could do. <laughs> and, and there's a dead armadillo in the yard. He was on the road. And then the vultures dragged him into my yard and have just been moving him around the front yard for the last week. And it's gross. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with him. I've not been trained. But how bad are arm- armadillos at crossing roads? I have never in my life seen a live armadillo. Yeah, yeah. No, no. You're posing all kinds of puzzling questions here that I am not equipped to, to answer, Aaron. Uh, well, I don't I- know about I, I do wanna... believe armadillos are nocturnal. I don't know why our listeners need to hear that, but uh, anyway. <laughs> well, if anyone knows the phone number to get one taken out of my yard, because I'm just going to throw it in the neighbor's yard and I feel bad about it, but I'm going <laughs> to do it. I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. Oh, come on. Throw it in a trash bag. Throw it in the trash. Send oh, is that what you do? I, sure, I, why not? Well, I thought that dead bodies in trash cans was like uncouth or unsanitary or not the way to go about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, well... <laughs> That sounds good to me. Okay. All right. I've, I've got permission. We're going to have somebody listening right now that's like, you can't throw a dead body in a trash can. That's <laughs> not like a mafia hit. And the vultures have pecked out most of the flesh. It looks like just, you know, the, yeah. the shell at this point. I want to make an ashtray, but I don't smoke. <laughs> oh, man. So, what's so going on? aside from ba- why are you yeah. baking all the bread, Aaron? What's up? What's up with the bread thing? Oh yeah, well, I mean, grocery prices have gotten so expensive, oh, and yeah, 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 I I don't eat a lot of bread. I eat tortillas. Mm-hmm. I'll have breakfast yeah. burritos uh, throughout yeah. the day with some eggs, but yeah. the the kids eat so much bread, and it costs yeah. like three yeah. fifty per loaf. And so yeah. I was like, screw that. I'm just waking up a little earlier and baking bread every day. And, but the bad part is the kids like it so much. They eat all the damn bread (laughs) within a day. So I have to do it every day. Oh, there's nothing like homemade bread. Store-bought can't compete. And it's, and it's like less than half the price. So it's been great. I've appreciated it. Uh, We've been working our sourdough starter. Uh Uh, Although in my mind, you know, growing up on the central coast, we had, like very sour San Francisco style sourdough. Uh-huh. Right, I, right. I can't find any sourdough bread like that around here in Tennessee. Okay. So I got some flour from a San Francisco company. I have never done a starter. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I now have two jars 
because I wasn't willing to throw away half of it. It seems yeah. like a wasteful process, this sourdough thing. But damn it, I'm going to learn to make it. All right. Well, you're making sourdough. I'm making yogurt. We're uh, we're you're, practically you're, you're we're practically yogurt. homesteaders here. Huh? I, what is with the yogurt? I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. My wife is a yogurt freak. And so are you, are you has are gotten you, very expensive, but are, we can go. It has. So are you milking the, the neighborhood cat? What's going on? <laughs> we live just uh, 25, 30 minutes away uh, from the Amish. So we can go get whole milk from the Amish at uh, three bucks a gallon. Got a ton of cream on it. And uh, yeah, I get home and I put that sous vide to, to use. And uh you know, scald the milk and put in some some leftover yogurt. Put I, it I in was, the water at 115 degrees for, uh, for have you, six have you hours, finished and it? you got yogurt, man. Huh? Has, has it turned out? You finished it? Oh, it's yeah, worked. fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm really preferring to picture you in a bonnet churning uh, on the porch. Like, okay. But I don't think that's how you make yogurt, but uh, it's it's a good picture in my brain. So All it's right. worked All out. Right. Is it is it delicious? Is it better? It, oh sure, it's fantastic! Absolutely, absolutely. Man, and we welcome are some, listeners to hear uh, <laughs> some rustic dudes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're honing our survival skills for uh, you know when the world ends. Hey, um, by the way, well, we do need to talk. I don't know. We can't talk yet in much detail about Samson Manor, but that fantastic property that has now fallen into our hands. Um, we will be sending pictures, by the way, of the new place. Samson House now has a house, and there'll be photographs in the next issue of uh, the Noble Briefing, Samson's monthly newsletter. So look for that. Can Can we talk uh, about the the day after the retreat in regard to the Samson Manor? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Shoot. Yeah, sure. Why not? So uh, our dear friend Justin Schwinn had a great idea which is for guys that are already coming all the way here, if mm -hmm. they would like to extend their stay from the annual retreat on the first weekend in November, past the Sunday, and come stay at Samson Manor. It's going to be sleeping on floors in sleeping bags, and then work on Monday, possibly even some of Tuesday, and just get, get some work done and hang out with the fellows we are going to have a work day at Samson Manor. Oh, so, okay. Fantastic. That will be the day and maybe two days after the November Eva retreat. Okay. Fantastic. Hey, I do want to mention to you and to our listeners a book that was recommended to me barely a week ago. I'm already um, on my second time through it. Uh, just a freaking fantastic book. It's by Arthur C. Brooks, and the title is From Strength to Strength. Um, it's especially appropriate for guys uh, my age or a little younger, guys in the second half of life. However, even if you are not in the second half of life, there is a chapter in this book that is just so kick-ass, Aaron. It, I mean, it knocked me sideways. And it's a chapter about success addiction. Okay, tell me more. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I had always thought, you know, I wouldn't call myself a workaholic, although I, I stay busy all the time. 
Um, and, uh, you know, money doesn't mean that much to me. Uh, there's, I hadn't thought of myself as any kind of a success, that success might be an idol for me and that I might be, uh, have my priorities screwed, <laughs> screwed up. I might be adding unnecessary misery to my life and the lives of those around me uh, because I was pursuing uh, success. Would, would you but, say that your success drive was tied more to approval addiction? I mean, when you yes, talk about the yes. different masks you wore. Very much tied more to, yes. And also uh, this pride-based need, this deep desire to make an impact, which I, which, you know, I don't want to be forgotten. I really want to leave the world a better place than when I found it. Which is, I suppose, it is certainly an admirable thing. But that, that can't, if I am willing to sacrifice relationship for that, if I am willing to uh, step away from authenticity and really, uh, you know, create some kind of outsized persona in order, you know, in a desperate attempt to become uh, immortal or not to be forgotten. Uh, these are uh, these are deep issues. So, what did you learn anyway, from this chapter? The kick-ass well, chapter. Uh huh. Well, well. First of all, I, you know, he said you can't solve a problem uh, that you won't admit, and it's it's it's, and it's it's interesting. So he says, for example, uh, he believes that workaholism is uh, even more virulent and perhaps even more prevalent than alcoholism. He also uh, pointed out, this surprised me, that actually alcohol use accelerates. It's higher among those with more education and uh, higher socioeconomic status. So success in, you know, if you're chasing success by the world's standards, that doesn't necessarily, in the misguided belief that it's going to make you happy in the long run, you are, you're, you're, uh, it's a fool's errand. It isn't going to work that way. Um, can, can you can you frame this? So a big that word success yeah. kind of crushes my heart a little. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if we've talked about it on here, but I have seen for myself and friends that I've walked through stuff with the idea of success and failure that we mm-hmm. walk into any situation with. This outcome, so it's all outcome yeah. focused, equals success. This outcome equals failure is a devastating mindset because sure. it is a judgment we are not equipped to make. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always think of is Jesus on the way to the cross saying, Now is the hour when the Son of Man is glorified. Like he's yeah. literally saying, <laughs> Here's the moment of success. Yeah, And then a few hours later, everybody who knew him best, knew him personally, right. deemed what happened to be failure. Right. So if the people closest to Jesus could not figure out what in the hell was going on between success and failure, like this is mm-hmm. the greatest success in human history, and everybody, 100%, thought this is failure, what chance do I have of understanding that? And then I think of people like Peter. Where was it a failure where he denies Jesus to a servant girl outside of the high priest's court? Yeah, was that yeah. a failure? Well, I mean, I I guess, but would he have been who he would be later 
without that. And so yeah. then was that a failure or a necessary moment in his life to break and humble him? And so just the judgment of success and failure confuses me and s- tends to derail me into just straight up wrong lanes of thinking. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, Arthur C. Brooks in this in, in this book, uh, From Strength to Strength, he actually he's a by the way, he's a, a Roman Catholic convert, very serious about his faith, who has upended his whole life uh, in light of the research for this book. He says, I'm not going to give advice that I'm not going to follow. Right. Um, he starts out with the, the first the first chapter to a guy my age is so depressing. It's hard to get to chapter two, because in chapter one, he talks about how um, all of our abilities fade. Our, we, our, our creativity peaks far earlier than we think it does. Our oh, productivity depressing. peaks far earlier than we think it does. He said, you know, in a survey, I don't know how many people were asked. They were asked, you know, when does old age begin? And the consensus was you're old when you're 85. The problem is that right now, average age is 83. So you're not even old until after you die. But if we step back and take a (laughs) rational look, take a rational look. um, Well, athletes know that, professional athletes. uh, They're going to peak in their 20s, maybe early 30s. but by mid-30s, almost all professional athletes are done. But think about all the great songs, the classic songs, Aaron. How old were the songwriters when they wrote them? Yeah, Bob Dylan wrote shit after about age 30, I think. There you go. Okay. I, 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 I could be wrong about that. I just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I don't he's know an outlier. He, he still has written some good stuff. But he's not. But the classic songs... Were written by by people in their teens, twenties, maybe the early thirties. The great uh, the technological breakthroughs these days in Silicon Valley, and uh, you know these quantum leaps that we're making. Uh, who's making those? Twenty year olds, thirty year olds. Um, the great scientific discoveries have been made by people in their twenties and thirties. All right, so give Sometimes me the hope here, because I, huh? I haven't ah. even read this book, and I can't get through the first chapter. You've bummed oh, me out. It's, Where, where's it's this go? very hard. So here's the thing. If you are a striver, as I am, and you want to succeed, and you have defined success in terms of you know, accomplishment, or fame, or money, or status, or possessions, whatever, okay, and, and you're gifted, and you succeed. And now you are 35, 40 years old. You're going to start losing a step. I've been saying this. You've heard me say this, Aaron. I feel like I lose a few marbles every day. And it has, it has distressed me because I feel like I, I'm just losing a step. I'm not as quick as I used to be. The impulse that we have is to double down, work harder, and somehow fight to present, uh, uh, to preserve our place in the social order, whatever that may be. And all of us know uh, the CEO who stays on too long, the guy in the office who was key to the company's success, 
But now, you know, people still like him, but and, and, and respect him. But he's—they're not coming to him much for at, at any rate. Okay, very depressing stuff. Yeah, you bummed me out. Keep okay, going. so w- what he says is that um, our fluid intelligence is what peaks, and that's inevitable. <laughs> it also there's a later chapter, also very depressing, where he you know um, advises us to come to terms with our own death. That's the other. This thing. is this is ah. the worst book. This is the worst book recommended. It started out with this is the greatest book ever. It's wonderful. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. It, I'm, I'm is, listening. it is absolutely wonderful because because he really gives sensible spiritual. Uh, it's not a Christian book. Uh, he draws from a broad range of uh, religious traditions as well as you know research and neurology and all that kind. It's a very. Here's the thing. So he says, fluid intelligence. That's what he calls that creativity that we have as young people. Peaks, perhaps as late as the mid-50s in some uh, careers. Kind of depends on what field you're working in. But it, but it eventually does peak. That's inevitable. But there is another kind of intelligence uh, that is available to us in old age. <laughs> older age, in that second half of life, which he calls concrete intelligence. Now, we, I, I think what the Bible calls wisdom. Yeah, I was going to say. Go on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but in order to take our place uh, and, and, and really to um, be of value in the exercise of that wisdom, that requires stepping off the pedestal. It requires an awful lot of humility. It, uh, uh, allowing other people to lead, uh, to be willing to step into support roles and counsel roles. One interesting thing, one outlier, he says, <laughs> in college, uh, survey after survey has shown that the most effective and the, the most valued, the best liked, the most highly recommended, most successful professors are the old guys. So he okay. says, if you're going to college, look for the old professor. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for that. So yeah. <clears throat> riddle me this, help me yeah. help me process this. Um, so I wonder, like mm-hmm. sociologically speaking, yeah. like from what I understand, and I'm no genius in this. But throughout history, older people stayed in the house with their family and Mm -hmm. were revered and looked to for wisdom. Mm -hmm. That was normal through, I mean, culture to culture around the world. We saw a shift in that at some point, and it feels like it was kind of moving into the hippie Vietnam Mm -hmm. War era time. Where it's like the old people don't know anything, yeah. the young people know everything. And we certainly see if if we were to grab just, you know, 50 kids off a college campus and really dig into, do you think old people know more than you about mm-hmm. what is best about the world? Yeah. I think they would mostly say no. Uh-huh. I think we know more about yeah. what is best yeah. for the world than the old people. Yeah. 
So how, and in their defense, I've known some stupid old people. Oh, yes, who, uh, yes. Well, you who, can't. Right. Who, who are just crotchety and complain about everything. They are not useful to young people. They will not listen and, to young people. See, that's right. the thing. <laughs> yeah. It, so, so, well, that's, that's the point. No, no, that's the point. Yeah. What's the balance where uh, I, I remember I was leading worship at a conference with this guy from uh, the Talbot, the, the Biola Seminary. Yeah, Talbot yeah, yeah. Thing, uh-huh. And he gave a quote. This was back when Friends, the show Friends, was the biggest show yeah. in the country, except yeah. Murder She Wrote had like twice as many viewers. In other words, there were twice as many old people watching Murder, She Wrote as uh-huh. watching Friends. Right. But the advertising during Murder, She Wrote was all targeted towards people in their 20s because they knew they could get old people to follow young people trends, which was a huge shift in advertising. Okay. Where older people listening to younger people is an important thing, but there is a line you cross where the older people are leaning into the wisdom of young people instead yeah. of young people listening. Yeah. So where is the line where, yes, you listen yeah. on the latter, and I'm on the latter half. Yeah. I'm not going to live to yeah, be yeah. T- yeah. however many twice 46 is. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not a math guy. Uh, so where, where do you think that line is? Because uh, I think you're right with the wisdom. Yeah, it's wisdom, and, and and also this concrete intelligence is synthetic. It's able, it takes a broad view because by the time you get to be your age and my age, we have a breadth of experience that young people don't have. We can put new discoveries and new insights into contexts. We can see connections. We can connect uh, future with past. Okay, he points out. <laughs> You know, how many of those tech companies on the West Coast, I mean, how often do you hear the story? There's nobody in the company who's over 30, and they have a brilliant innovation, and they make the stupidest business decisions and blow the company up. Or they just behave, okay, because they have not, uh, because they don't have, uh, you know, some older folks that they trust and respect who are part of the team. And I think it goes the other way. Uh, when those of us who are in the second half of life start to uh, stop listening or respect, uh, listening to and respecting those cre- those powerful creative minds that are coming up behind us. I mean, there's tremendous synergy if we have the humility to work together. Yeah. yeah. So it's the it's the working together. It's the community. Uh, it's it's fascinating. We should talk about it more. I mean, yeah. this is it's a it's a huge thing. I don't know how to fix it for the young people because they're all stupid. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, young people. Yeah, stroke, right. stroke, stroke. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I I do think yeah I I think both directions need to work on this. I I lament that our culture doesn't have a good container to mm-hmm. work on this yeah right yeah because we send old people to old people's homes we don't live in the same home with yeah. family and all all that stuff that existed for thousands of years well let's see how well we can do this in the samson society hey by the way well uh, uh-huh. yeah 
Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm watching the clock here. We're t- almost 25 minutes into this conversation already, and we've got a, a terrific interview in the can with a guy who you and I both know and respect. Guy's been on the show before in years past, uh, well-known author and speaker. Uh, Michael John Cusick is here. So uh, what do you say, Aaron? Is it all right if we wrap this and bring Mike Cusick in? I give permission. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we will be right back on the Pirate Month podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast and how thrilled I am to have back on the show after a multi-year hiatus. It's been a good long time since we've spoken. Uh, my good friend and uh, you know a trusted uh, authority in the field, a guy who most pirate monks already know by name, Michael Cusick is joining us. Hey, Nate. It's, a, it's <laughs> wonderful that this all worked out with our technology issues. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you've been globetrotting or something. You know, when I first uh, reached out to you about scheduling another interview, I think you were on the other side of the Atlantic, weren't you? That's right. I first got the idea from you where you did the, <laughs> we call it hiking, but they call it walking over in Scotland and England. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did a ten-day uh, pilgrimage for the Saint Cuthbert's Way, starting outside of oh, Edinburgh and then yeah. southeast uh, to the border of England through Northumbria. And oh. I got COVID one day before the pilgrimage ended. So on the last day, you're <laughs> supposed to walk across a mile of uh, low tide muck into the, oh. to the island of Lindisfarne, and I didn't get yeah. to finish that. Uh, I quarantined in London, but it was a remarkable time. I spent a week in Ireland with uh, my sister and did some family ancestral things. And uh, it was really, really, really remarkable. But you're the first person that ever told me about that. (laughs) And you know what? I'm already negotiating with Allie to set up another one of those trips for next, next, late, late next spring or early next summer. I hope some pirate monks will join us. Well, uh, it has been. It has been since before the pandemic, I think, since you and I were in a shared physical space. And uh, you graciously invited me a couple of times to come out there to Denver to participate in Restoring the, the Soul weekends, those remarkable intensives. Uh, bring me up to speed. Are you still doing the intensives? Uh, yeah, what's happening at Restoring yeah, the Soul? Yeah, we are still doing those weekend intensives. Uh, we called it initially for the first, oh, 10 or 11 weekends the Surfing for God weekend based on my book. And as you know, we Mm -hmm. take men in 66 hours from a Thursday night to a Sunday through trauma and shame and the roots of their addictive and compulsive issues. And we had more and more men coming for whom sexual addiction and compulsion wasn't the primary issue. They were depressed. Uh They were angry. They had childhood trauma. And so we've rebranded it as the Restoring the Soul weekend. And now it's kind of open to everybody. And a lot of men that don't have sexual issues as primary issues are discovering how deeply interwoven sexuality and spirituality is and how that's all affected by trauma and shame. So we continue, we, we since the pandemic where we had to cancel twice, we've now sold out twice, uh, three months in advance. And our next wow. one is coming up in uh, September 29th through October 2nd. And that's sold out, and we've got one coming up in February. Oh, wow. Uh, 
first week of February. And uh, people can go to restoringthesoulweekend.com to find out about that. But we've done 15 weekends. We've had, I think, over 600 men. And just like your ministry, it's been so neat to see it grow, never having really any understanding of where it would go or how it would change so many lives. You know, I, I was I was thrilled uh, when I listened to Ian Cron's podcast for the first time to, to, to hear that Restoring the Soul was, uh, was sponsoring that remarkable podcast. Of course, you and Ian uh, uh, and Annie and Julianne go way back, right? That's right. Yeah, over 30 years. I just talked to him, actually. Um, and he and I are doing some leading some groups together with men um, over the course of a a year-long kind of cohort that it's been fun to do together. Uh, But yeah, we've been advertising on typology and like so many counseling organizations, we had to shut down during uh, the Mm -hmm. the most difficult part of the quarantine, but we went online and then we've had a a four, five, six-month waiting list for clients to get in and we're hiring counselors left and right and hope to have 10 therapists that are doing intensive counseling. so it's been really remarkable to watch that grow as well. And I'm actually in the process of slowly stepping back, learning how to walk off the stage, learning how to just <laughs> live life and and, yeah, yeah. and be a guy and practice what I preach. Wow. Uh, I just, Allie and I just finished a few weeks ago, uh, Ian's newest book, uh, The Story of You, in which Julianne figures quite, quite prominently a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, here's one. Here's what I want to ask. So you, when, when did uh, when did Surfing for God come out? What year was that published? Believe it or not, it's been ten years. This past June, uh, so okay. it came out in 2012. It snuck up on me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how? When did? Uh, how, how far into recovery were you when that book came out? When did recovery begin for you? I'm trying to establish a timeline here, uh, and leading uh, up to a question. Yeah. Do you mean sobriety or recovery? Because I started recovery. <laughs> That's a big difference, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, as you know, I, I I make a distinction between sobriety and freedom, and recovery yeah. is about so much more than the sobriety. But yeah. I started I started counseling and recovery for my sex addiction in 1989. Um, I tell the story in Surfing for God, but the the old newspaper article that said mm-hmm. FBI raids escort service. I went to counseling within 24 hours because my name was in the book for uh, paying for prostitution. Yeah, And uh, I started that long journey and I, I confessed everything to my therapist and to my sister and to several friends, um, but never did sex addiction counseling, really just pressed into the sexual abuse. And I never got sober, but for the first time, I was 25 years old and I started 24 years old and through that sexual abuse work, I started dating women, and then I gained new skills to be become promiscuous and not have to pay for it. And so, <laughs> I, yeah, we're, we're laughing, and it is funny, but like yeah. when I started to get a little bit of healing, it was like I could actually have an intimate relationship, yeah, or at sure, least yeah. what I thought was an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm, and, yeah. and that's a longer discussion, but like there really was progress there. If sex addiction is false intimacy, I was learning true intimacy despite all the stumbling and the the, the potholes. But yeah. then through that, being able to date, I met and fell in love with my wife and uh, asked her to marry me on the third weekend we were together. We got married mm-hmm. eight and a half months later, came to Colorado where we went to graduate school. And three years into the marriage, 
that's when I was caught and my double life was exposed. And I've had sobriety ever since then. So July, 1994. So what's the math on that? 20, 28 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I am fascinated by uh, the way in which our understanding of the dynamics of addiction uh, is expanding over the years. I've seen I've seen so much growth and change in the years. I, I first walked into the rooms of SA in 1998. So I was a few years behind you. Back then, nobody was talking about trauma. No, nope. we no, no. We were focused and, and rightly so. I mean, it was helpful, but we were focused uh, you know, on initial abstinence and doing the steps. We were focused on character defects. We were focused on amends. Uh, I remember just being buffaloed the first time somebody mentioned to me the word trauma and then had the audacity to say that every sex addict has a trauma story. That's right. That's right. And, you know, interestingly, uh, Dr. Carnes, our, our patriarch uh, yeah. of, of the field, from his very first book, Out of the Shadows Forward, and I'm speaking now as a clinician as well as a sex addict because I, I yeah. read that book before I was ever a master's level therapist. You know, he was very, very adamant in Out of the Shadows that an overwhelming percentage, 70%, 80%, and in the 90% correlated with emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So sexual abuse, 70% of sex addicts he had worked with, physical abuse, 80%, and emotional yeah. abuse, 90% or above. But the word trauma wasn't there. Right. So there was a sense of they've all got abuse. And you remember, you know, late 90s, 2000, when we started, uh, when we started seeing pornography start to take over and the profile of the sex addict just dissolved. So yeah, his, yeah. his understanding of that abuse, you no longer had to have that in your background, at least as he was describing it to be a porn addict, because it was now crack cocaine. It wasn't building up from uh, mm -hmm. from over-the-counter medicine to opioids, so to speak. Right, right. But right, yeah, right. The, Nate, I've never been more excited and positive to be in the mental health field than I have felt in the last three years. The rate at which our understanding, as you said, about addiction, about trauma, about neurobiology and how mm -hmm. that's shaped in relationships, both in terms of how we're harmed, but also how we heal. It's It's just mind-boggling how quickly things are coming together. And finally, therapists are being trained in a different way so that this understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and trauma is not something they have to go get after they graduate. They're mm -hmm. actually yeah. having it yeah. incorporated into their training. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you are shepherding young therapists. You're bringing, I imagine you are also, you're in a training mode as well as a, 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 a therapy mode these days. I, I no longer teach. Uh, I was a full-time professor in the counseling program at CCU for a long time. And then from about 2001 onward, I've been an adjunct at Denver Seminary. I've not done that other than guest lectures in about four mm -hmm. or five years, but I, I train a lot of therapists through our organization and through my speaking and traveling. That's one of my great passions. Yeah. 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 Um, what are some of the other uh, changes? Uh, what, what are the, the, yeah, the positive changes that you have seen in this whole field of, of helping addicts? But, but first of all, let me just say, I'm thrilled that restoring the soul 
uh, is now seeing a broader array of people and not everybody has to have uh, a sex addiction story in order to benefit from the therapy. And we really are coming to understand, I think, even more clearly that we addicts and I, I don't need, do you, how do you feel about the word addiction? I'm getting pushback on the word addiction these day, days from people like KK Ray. Do you think it's a helpful word or uh, do we need to change our terminology? Oh, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And I just have to comment because you're my friend that the way you just held your head and the way you asked that question, I felt like I was talking to a late stage David Letterman right before he retired. Um, <laughs> I, I think. I think he's one of the best interviewers out there today. And I watch all of his new programming about my yeah, next yeah. guest. But um, so, yeah, the, the word addiction, if you talk about sex addiction, there's going to be half of the mental health field that will react just because they like to be oppositional and say, wait a minute, that's not a real addiction. And then they'll give you the definition of it. And then the other half will say, yes, it is. And here's the problem. People don't realize that the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which has been around since 1941, and right. it's now in almost its sixth edition, more than that, if you include the text revisions, that it's a highly politicized, uh, debated, controversial uh, book, which originally had 52 disorders when it came out in 1941. Then the second edition came out in 1968. This is the nerd professor in me. And each time <laughs> it came out, it exponentially grew the number of disorders. And right. I think that absolutely positively um, sex is an addiction and across science, maybe not psychology and in the DSM, but across science, there's a growing understanding of the addictive nature of substances, relationships, and behaviors or processes. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Gabor Mate and yeah. his book in the realm of hungry ghosts and he's one of the most convincing medical explanations of uh of the pervasiveness of addiction if we look beyond traditional clear-cut medical categories like alcohol substances etc right um, yeah. and he builds a pretty compelling case that he's been criticized for in the book in the realm of hungry ghosts as he talks about his addiction to buying compact discs you know the book was written <laughs> 15 years ago but he literally yeah. You know, despite adverse consequences as one of the, the characteristics mm -hmm. of defining addiction, and he would, you know, his wife said no more CDs, and he would go out and buy CDs and put them on a credit card, and he's uh, parallel writing about hardcore heroin addicts and meth addicts in inner city <laughs> yeah, Vancouver, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he's saying we're wrestling with the exact same issue. It's a fundamental issue of attachment beneath the mm -hmm. surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, there are a couple terms I would like you to expand on. One is attachment. Again, I didn't hear anything about attachment in the earliest years of my recovery. And, uh, and you do a beautiful job, by the way, in the Restoring the Soul weekend of really getting to the heart of attachment. And I have shamelessly pirated everything that you have taught in those weekends. Uh, uh, at any rate, yeah, talk to us about, uh, uh, if you will, because we have a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who are just coming through the door. Uh, and uh, we have partners and family members of uh, addicts who are just coming through the door. Explain for us what role 
attachment plays in the development of these compulsive behaviors? Sure. Well, first, let me define addiction. So I'm going to try to do several things all at once, and I'll try to do some fairly uh, well-performed intellectual gymnastics for the listeners. <laughs> back, back to this idea of addiction, and this, this is one of my passions. My favorite definition of addiction is from John Bradshaw, who passed just a couple of years ago. He was the, the former priest and theologian that in the 1980s championed the idea of the inner child. He wrote a book called Healing Toxic Shame and truly was the father of the, the recovery movement in the 1980s that spread. Mm-hmm. And he was on Oprah quite a lot. He defined addiction as an unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy mood-altering relationship with a person, substance, or process. And it's fascinating to me that now as we're talking about trauma and how um, sex addiction and, and, and lust addiction, as Alexander Katahakis says in her book, Sex Addiction and Affect Regulation, that it really is all about somehow bringing us into an equilibrium, a sense of peace, a sense of groundedness, a sense of wholeness, like we're okay, almost as if we're being held in the arms of a loving parent. So all addiction, Nate, is relationship. We may not have an actual person on the images mm. that we're seeing online, and the person that might be the the, the paid sex provider uh, or prostitute or strip club person like I was interacting with, although that may not be a real relationship, it's a relationship where there's a giving and a taking, and a relationship is fundamentally about reciprocity. And all addiction promises reciprocity and it and it actually only ends up giving in a one direction way so oh, yeah give us what we want the reason why i define addiction first is there's that relationship which is widely accepted as a unhealthy mood altering relationship with the person substance or process and attachment is fundamentally about how we relate in the world based on our very earliest relationship with our mother and our caregivers in our earliest days. We used to speak about attachment from age zero to four, that if a child got a good enough parenting Mm -hmm. experience, and if they got enough love using the four characteristics that I'll speak of often, of being seen, soothed, safe, then they will develop a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And the definition of that secure attachment is that I can predictably and reliably get my deepest needs met by the other in my life. And from a child zero to four, that's 100% inflow. Uh, An unhealthy parent will require that infant or that child to somehow glorify them or reflect well upon them, but it's meant to be one-way inflow. And that level of being seen, soothed, safe, and secure, which an infant needs, is what establishes trust. Mm -hmm. That infant that becomes uh, Mikey in kindergarten, then goes through grade school, and I have a crush on a girl. And if I have a secure attachment, I can be me in front of her and with her. But if I have an anxious attachment, I have to somehow perform and try to attach to her and hold on to her. And if I feel her moving away, and then this goes through junior high and high school and marriage, an anxious attachment is where I'm constantly maneuvering and anxious that I'm going to lose this connection because it's mm-hmm. so meaningful and it's 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 so all-encompassing in terms of well-being. And then people develop avoidant attachments. And that's where, as I start to get close and connected, and as I start to feel vulnerable, I will withdraw, I'll shut down, I'll pull away. 
And both of these, by the way, the anxious attachment and the avoidant attachment have their roots in the trauma idea of fight or flight, which is an anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. If I get close to you, I start to get scared that you're going to leave. So I go into a fight or flight mode to keep Mm -hmm. you. And then in the, uh, in the, sorry, I just lost my uh, avoidant. Yeah. Thank you. In the avoidant, it's the hypo arousal and it's the freeze mode around trauma. And so all of this is shaped in our nervous system from a very, very, very young age. And if we have an attentive, attuned, caregiving parent that sees us, not just sees us physically, although that's important too, but who sees who we actually are, who sees our unique self, who fans the mm-hmm. flames of that rather than tries to crush that or limit that or make us uh, comply with what what the family needs. And if we're safe emotionally and physically, we'll develop the secure attachment and say, I know that I can get my needs met. And then I'm less likely to demand that my needs are met in a way that I can control and in a way that is predictable, which is addiction. My, I'm, yeah. I'm going to be able to soothe myself. And when I have a low mood or an anxious mood, I'm going to be able to attend to that in a way where I can get my needs met in a healthy way, as opposed to have to compulsively pursue an end, which I can control and where there's no vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it can be depressing uh, in the initial stages as we explore our own dysfunction and we learn about what we didn't get in infancy and early childhood. And we understand now that we've come to the party with major deficits. First of all, uh, it's hard to disconnect that from shame and now feel yes. that I am, you know, deeply, deeply flawed, that kind of thing. Um, and it can feel kind of, I certainly have gone during my recovery journey through, uh, I've I've run into headwinds of hopelessness until, you know, a a loving and knowledgeable colleague, friend, fellow recovering person, uh, and most often a Christian, has reminded me that God has designed us with this amazing self-healing brain and that healing is possible and it is never too late to address those deficiencies. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Our brain, which scripture calls in Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The brain is remarkably, perhaps more than any other organ or part of the body. It's, it has a capacity for self-healing and, you know, with, with the brain, that self-healing has to happen in relationship. Yes. So I can, I can cut my hand and I can live in a convent or a cloister or stay in my hotel room and I can heal, but it doesn't really require another person, uh, assuming I don't have to have surgery or medical treatment, but I can't heal from trauma and abuse that was caused by relationship without relationship. Mm-hmm. And the relationship becomes really the way to repair and replace that unconditional, caring, loving, attuned presence that sees us, that offers soothing, that allows us to be safe and in the midst of our vulnerability and therefore secure. And that's what uh, the Pirate Monk organization, uh, the podcast, the groups does so well. And what the founders of the 12 Steps, Dr. Bob and, and Bill W., it was absolutely brilliant that they didn't call it alcoholic anonymous. 
you know, just one, <laughs> one guy in a yeah. room going, yep, I really want to drink today. And I hope someone comes in here that that it was all about community and relationship and even the brilliant 12th step where they send you out to give away the message. Right. Mm-hmm. And and it all happens in relationship. And, you know, I've always been jealous of your book in hopefully a positive way. It's it's such a good book. But your book created the whole piece of community. And I've thought of surfing for God more as kind of a a diagnostic of the problem and less the solution. And if I had to rewrite surfing for God, and I've thought a lot about that since it's Mm -hmm. at the 10-year anniversary, that I would have a chapter on community and have a chapter about what it means to heal in relationship. And if I can just say a word about that, it would just be a triangle where at the base of the triangle, it would be friendship, on the left side of the triangle, it would be authenticity. And on the right side, it would be mission. And each of those has three different categories. So friendship with myself, which is self-acceptance, self-compassion, yeah. friendship with Jesus, which is the, the embodied picture of God in regards to where people are at spiritually. The whole idea of Jesus, if you, if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus rather than a bunch right. of rules or organized religion. And then finally, there's an overflow. Rather than us standing there pumping the well, there's actually a fullness that comes out of us and abundance, and we give that away to others. So friendship with self, friendship with God, friendship with others, authenticity with God, first and foremost, can I actually trust him to be who I am, or am I, even in my religion, my spirituality, trying to be somebody other than who I am, authenticity with others, and then ultimately authenticity with myself. And it's often not until we're way down the road in recovery that we start to think about the category of self-deception, which is actually biblically all over the place, this category of how we deceive ourselves. And Gerald May, who wrote Addiction and Grace, said Mm -hmm. that self-deception is the chief characteristic of addiction, which I paraphrase as if you take away self-deception, you've just taken the guts out of the engine of addiction. Mm. And then the final category of uh, of mission is that I have a personal mission, not about what I'm going to do, but about who I want to be in the world. What kind of person do I want to be? A mission in relation to the kingdom of God and how we uniquely want to contribute. And that brings up the historic idea of calling, vocation. And then finally, mm-hmm. a mission in relation to others. How do I bring my unique gifting and impact into the world? And I, I think like it's that simple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the most encouraging uh, developments in Samson Society these days, uh, you know, we do newcomer meetings now, online newcomer meetings every day. And so we got guys coming through the doors every day. And I am noticing that an increasing percentage of the new guys who are coming are, are coming because they're being referred and sent by their therapist. And therapists are, are recognizing that... Uh, the value of this support between sessions and yes, uh, you know, they're good. They can, uh, uh, they can provide some relational support and certainly help guys navigate uh, the issues of their lives, but healing comes through relationships. So I love that therapists are sending guys to Samson. Pastors are sending guys to Samson. And yet, uh, you know, the typical guy that comes through the door (laughs) It didn't come because he wants to join a group. Most of us, so buried in shame, we want the secret information. 
that will allow us finally to defeat this thing on our own, figure out the puzzle, you know, uh, activate the sequence, whatever it is that that won't involve other people and expose us to risk. Uh, so, right. that, yeah, yeah, so that we can do it all by ourselves. And what I'm hearing you say is healing is relational because addiction is relational. Is that true? Yeah. Absolutely. Addiction is relational. You might have heard the name Andy Colbert, and I'm not sure if you ever have females on your podcast, but I can't commend I her do. enough. She's a good friend. She's been on my podcast multiple times. She wrote a book called um, Try Softer, and it's it's all about interpersonal biology, uh, trauma, attachment, but in this really simple way of instead of trying harder, try softer, open, learn how to receive. And it's a beautiful book about addiction, even though it's not about that. And um she said recently, we were hanging out, she said, all theology, she's a Denver Seminary graduate, all uh -huh. theology is attachment. And I got shivers through me. And you know what? It was later that I read a book called Renovated. You might have known or met Dr. Jim Wilder, who's been on my podcast. And he was very close friends with Dallas Willard. Mm -hmm. And in the first chapter of the book, Renovated, he says that as Dallas was dying in the last several months, they spent more time together than they previously had. And that Dallas said to him, Jim, I need you to take this message and pass it on. By the way, Dallas's wife was and is a marriage and family therapist. And oh. so intellectual philosopher Dallas Willard had his wife alongside him all of his life, kind of elbowing him, telling him about therapy. And they were integrating spiritual formation and therapy and inner healing and mm -hmm. some pretty wild stuff. And so Dallas said to Jim, I have come to believe that all salvation is simply attachment. Whew. Oh, wow. Just let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. And if you, if you just let that sink in, it's pretty profound because Jesus' final message was and you've seen me preach on this before, was he had a meal, he gave a message, and then he modeled it. And the meal yeah. was, rather than do a sermon, he got together and broke bread, and then the message was he washed feet. And then he said, now let me illustrate everything I've been talking about for three years. Instead of a big sermon, they walk outside from the dinner in their bare feet, and he says, here's this vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. So pay attention because here it comes. Remain. Mm. Abide. And you can see Peter there with his notepad going, okay, I'm ready. What? What's the secret? You know, what's the thing? <laughs> and he says, well, I just told you. He goes, no, you, you told me the top, you told me the name of the sermon. Abide. Yeah. <laughs> remain. What, what's the secret? Yeah. And Jesus goes, that is the sermon. And that is the secret. Remain. Abide. Well, that's the religious word for you are attached. Just stay there. Just yes. be attached. Just be attached, which is like saying, I'm a parent. I've picked you up after you've skinned your knee and banged your head and you're screaming out loud and I'm holding you in my arms and I'm going, Shh, it's okay, honey. It's okay. I've got you. I've got you. And the words of Jesus are just let yourself be loved. Yeah. And that's as simple as it is, but it's out of that that all the other complexity and depth comes. And it's mm -hmm. so absolutely freeing um, where it, it's so much beyond sobriety. It's like I have absolutely nothing in the world to prove in those moments. And I'm not afraid of anything. And whatever pain is in my heart, 
there's actually a human embodied person with skin that I can turn to. And if that person isn't there, like they are in your groups, then I have some mental representation inside of my mind and in the eyes of my heart and in my body that I can breathe deep, I can be mindful, and I can recall that and fall back on that attachment. Wow. Uh, Michael, we could talk for hours, uh, <laughs> but I'm watching the clock and time is flying. I, I, can I can I wrap this up? But before I do, extract from you a promise that you will come back sometime in the future and we'll talk some more. Uh, we'll do it. Let's do it this week. <laughs> let's, do it, let's, let's get it recorded so we don't have to wait. Then you can play at any old time. Okay, that's a good idea. All right. Good. I'm busy this weekend going off to Wichita to lead a retreat, but uh, okay, I'll get with- I'll, I'll uh, be in Wichita in three weeks at the Apprentice Gathering. Will you? Yep. I'll with be darned. Kirk Thompson and John Ortberg and uh, Tish Harrison Warren and Rich Velotis and Jim Smith and a bunch of other people. Wow. What a lineup. Holy smokes. Okay. Well, I'm going to need to tell these Samson guys that I'm going to visit uh, about this thing. I, they probably already know if it's in Wichita. That's okay. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're staffing up. Any chance that you are going to um, step up the frequency of the Restoring the Soul weekends or do them in any other uh, venues in the future? That That's the question. So I came back from Europe on my pilgrimage and I, I promptly cut back my hours by 25%. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I'm and I'm, I'm an admitted alcoholic. Uh, workaholic as well as yeah. a recovering alcoholic and sex addict. And so I now start work at 10 o'clock, two days a week and 11 o'clock, two days a week and go home at the same time. And it's been, it's been absolutely wonderful. Another thing I picked up from you is the joy of walking where mm -hmm. I just, I just walk and it's, it's no pressure. Like I don't have to run or tie myself. So um, the pulling back has really been for the less is more purpose. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the next part of my life. Mm. And even though I've been writing a book for a long time, I don't feel like I have to write a book. I don't feel like I have to do more weekends. And something that's bubbled up is the want to, but without the pressure. And it's so yeah. free. Oh. And so I'm talking with a group of younger men about them basically doing these weekends in a modified mm -hmm. form that would be probably Friday through Sunday, where 75% of what happens on the weekend is there. And we've definitely decided that the weekend, you don't need Michael Cusick to do the weekend. Mm -hmm. I, I do bring unique elements to it, but the key part is relationship, not sure. me. Right. And so um, I, I'm hoping to, uh, there's a couple places in the country and I won't say where, but they're both in the southeast part of the country uh, where there's cities with 20 to 30 men that have attended our weekend and they want to kind of start something. We can't do a third weekend in the current format because it's so volunteer heavy that it's really yeah. hard to do. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm 58 and I now officially consider myself an old guy because the clock's ticking and I, I, yeah. I'm no longer deceived that I can do everything that I once could. And on the one hand, I'm less passionate about sex addiction, but more passionate about people being set free. Yeah. And I guess what I'm seeing is that everything that you and I are talking about right now is just about being human in our world today. 
Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, listeners, uh, I, I promise you, Michael and I will continue this conversation at some point in the future. Michael, thank you so much for, uh, I don't know whether you've stayed late or you just fit us in at the end of the day, but thank you for taking the time to talk with me. And uh, I look forward to reconnecting on down the road. Oh, it's always a joy. And just last week I did an intensive with somebody and he said, who can I connect with? And I, and I sent him to uh, the Samson Society. So what you guys are doing is, is profound and life-changing and, uh, and beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. on the pirate bunk podcast so we've got a few little things that you should know about one we want to hear from you your questions your thoughts uh those can be sent to pirate monk pod no pirate monk yes pirate monk podcast at gmail.com i never do that part it's amazing i still don't know that email but anyway (laughs) hear from you also uh some of you i'm not sure how justin is sending this out We've been asking for questions uh, for things to be discussed, topics, um, folks that you would like to hear us interview. So if you receive that, please send it back to us. But specific to Samson Manor, there is a new Gmail account, which is Samson Manor. That is Samson without a P. No P, people. Samson has no P. Uh, SamsonManor at gmail.com. So if you have thoughts, insights, we're deeply planning phase of this, send us a note there. And if you are interested in staying after the Eva Tennessee retreat and hanging out and doing, who knows what we're going to be doing, building bunk beds, uh, painting walls, stuff like that. If you just want to hang out, you don't need particular skills. If you have them, we'll like you better. And so will Jesus, but the rest of you can come as well. well let us know. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, shoot us a note. So if you want to stay, we need to know you're going to be there because we need to have food and things for you. But also remember, bring your sleeping bag. This is going to be rustic. We're going to be sleeping on the floors in the house because there's not a lot of furniture at this point. All right. Well, Aaron, I guess that's a wrap. We are going to be busy this week. Justin Schwind has been working hard, lining up interviews for us. We're going to be busy. And uh, the airwaves are going to get uh, cluttered with all kinds of great information in the in, in the months ahead. Until next time, then. I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.